Jeremiah 31, verses 27 through 34. The days are surely coming, speak the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with seeds of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, to destroy and bring evil, so I will watch over, over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth have sat on edge. But all shall die for our own sin. The teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be sat on edge. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. It will be like a covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. A covenant that they broke, for I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. This is my favorite part. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another, or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive them their iniquity, and remember their sin no more. May God bless the holy name and name of his word.
Paul's second letter to Timothy in the third chapter, beginning verse. All right, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have known sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be proficient, put in every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judged the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you proclaim the message. Be persistent whether time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound teaching, but have their ears tickled. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander away Silver and everything. Your son, do the work of evangelism. Carry out your ministry fully. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Join your heart.
mentioned before that the Hebrew word for heart is yib. And so the heart in Hebrew is lavik. Say it over and over again, and you can begin to understand the anomalia of that word. In Greek, it is karnia. It doesn't focus on the sound that the heart makes. Instead, karnia has to do with being the very center of things. And if there was any, any space that is the center of the torso, it would be the heart. For those of us who get our meat on styrofoam trays wrapped in plastic, it's hard to get a full understanding of anatomy. But for our ancient kin, knowing the heart was the mammalian center that made real noise and did real stuff, the life itself would end when a heart stopped beating. Referencing the heart for them, you might say, had a, had a deeper and quicker meaning. We walk around with two understandings of the heart, do we not? One is the word we use when we are talking to our cardiologist. I'm going to the heart doctor, you with my chest pains. There the doctor will give you words to describe the mechanical functioning of your cardia, your blood pump. I remember as a chaplain at the University of Chicago for the cardiology unit. I would talk with patients, and this happened multiple times. And I would say as chaplain, why are you here? They said, well, I came into the emergency room because I had chest pains. But then the cardiologist told me I had pectoangina, which is Latin for chest pains. <laughs> and for that, they know the insurance company. We walk around also with a Second understanding of the heart is the one related to romance and to feelings. It's the heart of Valentine's Day. It's a less concrete and more emotional kind of thing. It's the one that you gave away last Christmas. And of course, this Christmas you will give it to someone special. Thank you, Ram, for that in the holiday year worm. Same word. But almost like it's located in two different parts of our heads, right? One is the mechanical fun function, as in cardiologist. The other is emotional function, or our psyche. When that heart is troubled, you don't go to a cardiologist, you go to a psychologist. Same word, two different doctors. But when we see in the word in scripture, the word heart in scripture, keep in mind, the author, be it a psalmist or a gospel writer or an epistle, there isn't that absolute clear division. Your ticker is what makes you tick. So when God says a time will come when the law will be written on your heart, the prophet Jeremiah knew that God's promise would be something that kept us ticking, just like that mechanical pump in our chest does, the center of oneself, one's very being, it gives life. Well, take a moment and pretending you're a civilian about to say the Pledge of Allegiance. I say civilian because if you're a military, you salute because you're a civilian. Where do you put your hand? You put your hand on your heart, right? So do that with you. You won't say the Pledge of Allegiance. You talk at all unless you're so inspired that the occasional amen or preacher brother would be fun. Think about the blood coursing through your veins, that little pump. Today it's 
taken up probably about 100,000 times, probably just a little under 100,000 times, unless you take eight years to walk. That's about 35 million times a year. It's two and a half billion heartbeats in an average lifetime. If you took a tennis ball and gave it a good squeeze, that's about the pressure of what your heart does all of the time, day in, day out, week in, week out, unflinching, unresting, unyielding, that is, that is, that is. It's the thing also that we give to our partner as long as we both shall live. Keep your hand up for I shall write my law on your heart, the promise. I love your law, wrote the Psalms. God's law, the order of things, the, the very force that keeps our cardia, our hearts, ticking. In Hebrew, the word law is thought. And you've heard that word before, usually referring to the first Bible, the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, the books of the law. But in Hebrew, uh, the word law, in the same way as it is in English, functions as the law, the books of the law, but also lowercase f. Torah, referring to that part of the Bible. But then there's also Torah, which refers to, to laws, the laws of physics, the laws of nature, the laws of astronomy, of society. When the psalmist references God's love of the law, it's not confined to Torah study. It includes every discipline that aids in the understanding of how things are, how the world works, how we really are, what makes things tick. Now, as pastor, I have to tell you, I have grown profoundly weary of the portrayal of scientific understanding as somehow in opposition to religion and faithful interpretation, as if there are two understandings in conflict with one another. There's the understanding of the physical universe, observable, discernible, knowable, ah, but behind it we are told from many pulpits. There is a defiant, mystical universe that is secret, erratic, and unseeable. That's the one that we're supposed to pledge our love to. And if they are in conflict, you know what to choose. Authors of scripture saw no such split. It wasn't that they were primitive, and so the blurry lines between empirical evidence and knowable discernment was easier for them. They fully understood something that I fear we lost. To better understand and to know the created world, to discern its mechanism, discover its meanings is exactly the same thing. Our faith is not to be shaken by study, any study. In fact, understanding should bolster and strengthen and deepen our appreciation and our appreciation We begin today our stewardship each year I conjure up a theme, trying to come up with something that will capture your imagination. 
or at least satisfy my employer. Uh, this last session meeting that we had this September, uh, somebody asked me on the session team, and I said, I was at the tour team, and I said, uh, now, you know, I'm really distracted right now. I, I have nothing. Elder Hines said, that's a great theme for stewardship. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and then somebody started to sing, I got plenty of nothing. And I said, no, 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 the next line doesn't help stewardship at all. Because it said, nothing's plenty for me. Well, that won't help with giving, will it? But after more thoughts, I did come to some words. And I like brief stewardship. I really like one word, but this year I got two. And it's giving priority. Giving priority. You know, that's what learning is actually all about. That's what scholarship does. It helps us to know our priorities, the order of things. What is prior? What came before? Isn't that the question that we ask when we approach science? Or when your three-year-old is a budding scientist? And they continue to say, why? Why? Unfortunately, we adults do a very good job of squelching that inquiry because you get to the point where you say, because I said so. And all of a sudden, whether atheist or not, you begin to set up profoundly religious. The order of things is the first studies of deeper understanding, giving priority. So Paul is saying to Timothy here in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it reads, all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training, and righteousness. So that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped in every good work. Now here's a little translator's insight to that verse, verse 16. A little note. But the way in which this is translated makes all the difference. There's a theological tension in the English. All scripture is inspired by God. Pasa grape is the Greek. Pasa grape. Grape, from which we get graphic. From which we get graphite, by the way, because that's what's in a pencil, not lead. All writing is God breathed, Paul, inspired by God. For our brothers and sisters in Christ who hold the Bible to be the exclusive index of all truth, all scripture, the S is capitalized. Largest scripture, all scripture. So the little meme says, title. B-I-B-L-E. Basic instruction before leaving earth. <laughs> Except I hope that's for a while, and I'd kind of like to know what's going on before I leave earth. Paul and Timothy didn't have the New Testament, so when Paul says, Pasagrafe, what was he referring to? Well, we would say, oh, he's referring to the Hebrew Scriptures. All Scripture must mean but then we as Christians have this additional addendum known as the New Testament added the Hebrew Scriptures. So how can Paul be referring to Scripture that did not yet even exist at the time of the 
writing the second Timothy, there probably was not even a circulating gospel beyond the gospel of Mark. Pasagrafe. All writing is not breathed. Lowercase s. All writing is not breathed. God breathed. If you have multiple translations, or look up Second uh, Timothy three sixteen uh, in an app that gives you parallel translations, you will see a telltale issue intersecting the translation of this passage. Some scriptures translated capital S. Others translated lowercase s, and some even just say all right. Remember, there is an uppercase Torah referring to the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, and a lowercase Torah meaning any law or order of things. You'll see the same translators' influence here. Some try to keep God's inspiration localized, trying to make it a capital S. All scripture, the Bible, as I understand it, is the only place where you can find God's hand. Or you can make it lowercase. Whatever you happen to learn. Whatever you happen to read that brings you insight. Whatever, as Paul says, prepares you to be proficient in the world. Is it possible that the Apostle Paul is unleashing Timothy's scholarship? To consider the order of all things. To study not just capital T Torah, but any lowercase t Torah, any math or science or poetry or botany or social law or religious tradition. Is it possible that all writing provides little windows into the mind and character of our Creator? Some that say, aha, I know what the pastor is saying, even the apostle qualified that I should pursue a life of science and in the process abandon those things that we previously perceived as myth. But that discounts the first word, the adjectives that Paul uses, pasta, all. All is God free, all right. is God free, so one cannot. Walk away from scripture in the name of walking to others, but that is embraced in the process of how and what we learn to prepare our hearts, not for living earth, but for figuring out who to be today. It is how we give priority. Can we be as open to understanding? With the psalmist when he wrote, How I love your law, his opening his heart, his tick, his being, walk who God is, God has created. Be still my heart. Amen.